I want to invite you to open your Bibles, uh, if you have a Bible with you, to Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back you can borrow. If you don't own a Bible, please take one of those. That's our gift to you. We are continuing our series in the letter to the Philippians. We're drawing towards the end. We're going to look at two verses this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And so you can flip there. Uh, so that you're ready when we, when we read those together shortly. In a moment, not yet, Doug, but in a, in a, a couple moments, I'm going to have Doug uh, put a picture up for you on the wall behind me. Uh, it's one of my favorite pictures of me with my youngest son, Brennan. It's from years ago. Let me just set it up for you. Uh, most falls... I would climb up on the roof if I hadn't delayed and there wasn't too much snow yet. I would climb up on our roof to put up Christmas lights and then in spring to take them down. I don't remember whether this was in the process of putting them up or taking them down, but Brennan, still as a preschooler, uh, really, really wanted to come up on the roof with me. And so one uh, year, uh, he, I had him crawl up the ladder in front of me. Uh, he was so excited to go up. And I, I got Christine to get the camera and to, she climbed up the ladder behind us. He was so excited. He wanted to be on the roof with me. And so we got up there. And then at one point, he sat down next to me. I'll have you put the picture up. Uh, it, it doesn't look like he's happy. It doesn't look like he wants to be there. He, he looks pretty scared. But he's trying really, really hard to smile. He was really, really scared. He, 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 he had wanted to be there, and then when he got there, it wasn't quite what he anticipated. And so through his, his terror, or whatever it was exactly going on in his little heart and mind, he, he, he's trying desperately to smile. And it just blesses my heart that in, in those moments, I was able to be there and just hold him and say, hey, you're going to be all right. You're going to make it. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. And so uh, that, that is, for me, uh, just a... A cool moment where my son was experiencing something hard and I was able to be with him. Thank you, Doug. This morning, we are going to look at two verses, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 4, and they will conclude with the promise that the God of peace will be with us. Uh, Paul is writing this to Christians who are Facing some challenges. Not, not all is well, much like some of the things that we shared this morning just a few moments ago. And, and into the midst of that, Paul shares this glorious promise that the God of peace will be present with us. This letter Paul has been writing, has, he's been writing it to a church that he planted, to believers that he knows and loves. He's writing from prison in Rome. Uh, unsure of what the future will hold exactly for him. And he's writing to a church that is experiencing two things. You all know this already. In, internally, they are experiencing some relational strife, some, some relational tensions. Not all is well within the church in their fellowship with one another. And, and secondly, and, and more significantly for us today, they are experiencing external opposition. They are, they are experiencing pressure and persecution, and they're beginning to suffer 
for their faithfulness to Jesus. And, and so Paul has been writing to address both those things, calling them to oneness, to unity as a body, to have the mindset of Jesus who humbled himself and considered the interests of others rather than his own. And, and Paul has called them to, uh, to stand together in the face of whatever challenges for the gospel. That is, they would, in light of what is true about them through Christ, and in light of the future that is theirs in Christ, a sure future, the heavenly prize of knowing Christ fully, that they would, they would forget about everything else that is behind, and they would pursue that goal and stand together for the sake of the gospel in the midst of a dark and pagan and lost city. In the previous uh, verses that we looked at last time we were together, uh, verses 4 to 7, that is part of a larger section that we're finishing today called Final Exhortations. Paul is about to bring this letter in for a landing. There's only one more major issue uh, coming up, and that is Paul's thanksgiving for their financial gift. That's one of the reasons he's writing to them. The Philippians have supported him financially. When you were in prison in those days, your needs needed to be met by others. They didn't provide all that, and so the Philippians have generously given him. So that's coming up, his word of thanksgiving to them. But other than that, he is, he is winding things down. He's bringing things in for a landing. In, in the, the text that we looked at two weeks ago, he, he gave them three commands that they were to rejoice always, to rejoice not because of their circumstances, they were to rejoice always in, in the Lord because of what is true of them in Jesus. They were to rejoice in the Lord. They were to exhibit gentleness in the face of opposition in the, towards those who are against them. They were to exhibit gentleness. And then thirdly, they were to not be anxious, but rather than being anxious, they were to pray. They were to present all their requests to God and they were promised that they would receive the peace of God. Here Paul comes to conclude his final exhortations before moving into his thanksgiving. If you have your Bible, I invite you to, to follow along as I read just two verses, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to speak to three different matters. I want to speak to our heads I'm going to speak to our hands, and I'm going to speak to our hearts. We begin with our heads. There are within these two verses two commands, two imperatives. The first one is translated in the NIV as think. Uh, the, the Greek verb that, that is translated here, it, it means to, to think about something in a detailed and logical manner. It, it means to reason out, to reason about, to ponder. This isn't just thinking like, I think tonight I'm going to have ice cream. Like, I actually don't think I'm going to have, I'm going to have ice cream tonight. But, but it's, it's not just this trivial, hey, here's a thought. It, it's, it's about really pondering, reasoning, reflecting upon. Think diligently. Think deeply. Paul is commanding the Philippian believers to careful, diligent, intentional thinking. 
as those who are Christians, in other words, whatever else he will say here, clearly coming to faith in Christ, being a follower of Jesus, does not mean that we check our brains at the door. Paul is concerned with what's going on in our heads. Christianity is concerned with what's going on in our heads. We are to think, we are to consider, we are to reflect upon, to ponder. Now Paul obviously is going to say more in this regard. He's going to provide us a list of things about which he wants the Philippians to think. Six adjectives and then two nouns he uses. The six adjectives, we are to think about what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable. And then he says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Our heads matter. Discipleship, disciples of Jesus are called, we're commanded to be thinking people. 25 years ago, I read a book written by the Christian historian Mark Knoll called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. I, I have never forgotten the very first line of that book. He opens his book with this. He says, The scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. He says the church, speaking of Americans, but I don't know that it would be any better in Canada. He says the church has largely failed to think deeply about so many things. The church has failed to, to exercise our minds. He goes on and says, notwithstanding all their other virtues, American evangelicals are not exemplary for their thinking, and they have not been so for several generations. The, the scriptures command us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In verse 8, we encounter the, the word uh, whatever. It's repeated six times. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. This repetition, whatever, 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 it, 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 it impresses upon us the comprehensiveness of what Paul, the, the scope of, of what our thinking is to look like. We're to think about all these sorts of things to consider, to ponder, to, to really dig in and reason them out. Let's look at some of the adjectives here, the words that Paul uses. He says, first, whatever is true. He calls the Philippians to think about truth. What, what is true? Uh, Jesus tells us the truth sets us free. Truth is vitally important in our lives as human beings. Uh, in Ephesians 6, Paul speaks about us having the belt of truth around our waists. Truth is of great importance. The truth about the world we live in. The truth about the God who made us and to whom we're accountable. The truth of our predicament because of sin. The truth about uh, what Christ has done to redeem us. And, and other truths as well. In a world, in our world, in our culture, on the one hand, it seems that we have lost a sense of truth. Truth is thought to be relative. Every once in a while, to get a rise out of me, one of my sons who will be nameless says, hey, that's my truth, Dad. My truth. No such thing. There's just what's true. 
Truth is, in fact, objective. Truth is whatever corresponds to reality. Truth, all truth, is rooted in God. All truth is God's truth, and we are to think about what is true. Second, whatever is noble. What does that mean? Well, we think of what is not noble, what is vulgar, what is crude, what is frivolous or trivial. Or Alistair Begg says, noble is, is the spire, not the gutter. We're, we're to think about noble things. Third, whatever is right. The, the word translated right here speaks of what is just, what, what, is, what is righteous, what is undefiled. It, it gets at uh, things being in the right relationship as God intended it, being the way they should be. Fourth, whatever is pure, without defect, innocent, not tainted by what is evil, not tainted by wickedness. It, it carries the idea of moral uprightness, of, of holiness. Fifth, whatever is lovely. And here we have the, the uh, we're to think of beauty. What moves you? What, what causes, what stirs in you admiration? God is the author of all that is beautiful, all that is lovely. Sixth, whatever is admirable. The King James Version translates it, of good report. Something that is worthy of our praise. Something that we would give approval to, that God would give approval to. Then he says, seventh and eighth, he said, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Anything is outstanding in its goodness. If it is worthy, again, of praise, of approval, of your affirmation, of, of God's affirmation, think about these things. It's quite the list of virtues. It's representative. It's not exhaustive. And I, I want to just say this. It's, it's not limited to theology or to ethics. I'll say more about that shortly. But these are the kinds of things that Paul commands the Philippians to think about, to, to ponder, to think deeply about, carefully about. If you and I are honest with ourselves and with one another this morning, how are we doing in this regard? Are our lives characterized by careful thinking that would would line up with Paul's list of virtues here? Is our Christianity characterized by this kind of deliberate, careful, reasoned thought? And we can go in two different directions. First, are, are we engaging our minds in careful, diligent thinking? Are, 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 we, are we living thoughtfully as followers of Christ? But, but secondly, are, are we thinking about these kinds of things, things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, things that are excellent and worthy of praise. The reality is that we are bombarded daily by all manner of things that don't meet this list, I would suggest. Just think for a moment of what we see, what we take in on social media. Think about television programming and the movies coming out of Hollywood. Think about all the streaming services and all they have to offer. Think about the advertising industry and the messages that we hear. Think about radio and print media. What is it that we are taking into our minds? What is it that we are thinking about as followers of Jesus? Jesus. 
Are we filling our minds with what is true, or are we, are we filling our minds with, with things that aren't true, lies? Are we filling our minds with what is noble or with what is vulgar and crude? Are we filling our minds with what is right or with things that are, are wrong, evil? Are we filling our minds with what is pure or with what is offensive to God? and Just like, oh, it's just a movie. Are we filling our minds with what is lovely, with what is beautiful, or with what is crude and ugly? Are we filling our minds with things that are admirable, worthy of praise, or would we blush if others knew what we were watching? Sam Storms asks this question. If you had a filter or a mechanism of some sort that you could automatically apply to your TV and your computer and your cell phone and your iPod and the books you read and the websites you visit and the video games you play and the places you go and what you see and what you hear that only permitted things that reflect and are consistent with the eight virtues just listed, how much would be left for your intake? That's a challenging question, isn't it? Paul says, think about such things. How much would we be left with? How might your life, how might my life look different if we actually took this imperative to heart? I want to ask this question, what is the Spirit of God saying to you? What is the Spirit of God saying to me? What are the things that the Spirit of God is calling you to abandon, or me? What are the, the things that the Spirit of God is in calling you to engage in, so that we would be followers of Christ who think according to this word from Christ? Our heads matter. We are called to love God with our minds, and here we are commanded to think Think in these ways, to think about these kinds of things. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to take that imperative to heart. Now, before we move on, I, I want to share an important caveat. I want to, in speaking of these virtues, Christians, those who are followers of Christ, do not have a monopoly on these virtues. In fact, if you look up any commentary on this verse, what you will discover is that this list of virtues would have been very familiar in, in sort of the secular culture of the day, if you will. Uh, many philosophers of those days would have, would have written uh, lists of virtues that would have included many of these words. This vocabulary is actually a little bit unique in the New Testament, unique to Paul even. Here's what one scholar, Gordon Fee, writes. He says, take away the finally brothers and sisters, take away that first part of the sentence, and this sentence would fit more readily into Epictetus' discourses or Seneca's moral essays than it would in any of Pauline's, of the Pauline letters except for this one. Epictetus and Seneca were Stoic philosophers of the day. So, so we need to remember this about Paul. Paul was a Jewish man, thoroughly steeped in Jewish scripture. His theology was radically transformed with his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the, the, res, the, the crucified, resurrected uh, Christ, the Son of God. But he 
he was also part of the Greco-Roman culture in which he grew up. We, we see evidence of that in Acts 17 when in one of his sermons in Athens, he actually quotes a pagan poet. He, he was familiar with his culture. And, and so here's the important thing for us to realize. Paul is giving this exhortation, this command to the church in Philippi, a church that lives in the midst of a pagan and unbelieving culture. And in that context, they are to be thinking people. And, and, and Paul, in challenging them to think this way, to think carefully, is not calling them to abandon the city, to, to move north, circle the wagons, and, and burn everything that's not a Bible. He, he's not. Theologians speak of, of common grace, this, this idea that God in His goodness and grace has bestowed on humanity, including those who don't know Jesus, He has bestowed His good gifts, gifts like wisdom, gifts like knowledge, gifts like creativity and innovation. Uh, my point being, or Paul's point, is that thinking Christianly, thinking this way, does not mean isolating ourselves, running away, and only you know, getting into a Christian bubble where we, we shut off everything else. It means thinking Christianly wherever we are, being discerning. And, and so it's important, I think, that we hear that. We need to be discerning in our thinking as we think about what is true and noble and right and pure, lovely, admirable. So let's bear that in mind. Let's turn from our Heads to our hands, and by hands I simply speak of what we do, what we think, and then what we do. As we turn to verse 9, or in verse 8, Paul says a lot about thinking, but he's not done yet. He's not simply calling the Philippians to be ivory tower intellectual eggheads, though he clearly emphasizes the vital role of thinking he absolutely is concerned with more than just thinking. He's concerned with more than just what's going on between our ears. Look at verse 9. It begins with another whatever. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Notice this. Verse 8 is all about thinking. Verse 8 is concerned with what goes on between our ears. But here, verse 9 is about doing. It is about putting into practice. That is, Christianity is not merely a matter of our minds, not merely a matter of thinking rightly, but also about turning those right thoughts, the things that we have learned, the things that we have received, the things that we have heard, the things that we have witnessed, in this case to the Philippians, Paul doing, putting those into practice with our hands, that we would live this way. And, and Paul speaks here again of the idea, an idea we encountered earlier in the letter, of imitation. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. So he calls them to think Christianly, to think well, to think deeply about everything in, in, in a way that is virtuous, to think about those things that are good, and then to also apply these things to their lives. See, what has been Paul's major concern in this letter? It has not been doctrinal error. The, the Philippians have not lost their way as far as theological truth. Paul has reminded them, them of the gospel, but, but the main issues have been the, the, the relational tension in the church that they're, they're not practicing humility. They're not 
practicing as Christ and putting the interests of others first. And in the face of suffering, they're, 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 they're scared and they're not living with the courage that is theirs. And so it's, it's about practice that Paul is speaking about, but he speaks of thinking because our thinking, how we think, what we think will shape how we live, what we do, what goes on in our heads will affect what we do with our hands. We are or should be reminded here of a key aspect of Christian discipleship. Life on life. That is, we don't live as a bunch of individuals. And this is a hard word for us in our culture. We don't like this. You might feel uncomfortable, but Paul actually says it, Jesus says it in his word, that you are not, we're, we're not our own. We belong to one another. That when we enter into faith with Jesus, we enter into relationship with Jesus, we are thereby brought into family and in that we belong to one another. That we are called in a community. And that just as Paul calls the Philippians to follow his example we need one another. We need to follow the example of others who are a little bit ahead of us on the road. And likewise, we need to be inviting others to follow us, to follow our example. You cannot biblically live as a Lone Ranger Christian. It's, it's, it's not there. We're, we're called in a community, and we see this idea of imitation. What we have learned, received, heard, and seen, put into practice, this is the way Christian discipleship works. For this church, these believers, these original recipients of this letter, what have they heard? What have they received? What have they seen in Paul? They heard Paul declare that what does it matter if some people preach the gospel with wrong motives to stir up trouble for me? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. They have been reminded that even now, as Paul writes to them from prison, he is rejoicing, not in his circumstances, he's rejoicing in Christ, in what is true about him because of what Jesus has done. They have heard that he considers all that he once valued, he considers it all rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and being found in him. They, they've heard him proclaim the hope of heaven, the hope of one day knowing Christ in all fullness. And so they've heard him say that he is forgetting what is behind and straining forward towards the goal, the heavenly prize of knowing Christ Jesus. They have heard him say, reminding them that they are citizens of heaven, living in the midst of the city of Philippi. In the midst of a city that is filled with darkness and lost people. And now as Paul is preparing to conclude his letter, he calls them to do, to put into practice all that they have heard and received and seen in him. Following Jesus, Paul, think Paul the, the pastor, Paul the, the church planner, Paul the friend of these Christians, this is, these are his final exhortations. And he, he's, he's trying to leave them equipped to follow Jesus in Philippi, to follow Jesus where they find themselves. And, and he, he gives these two imperatives that they would think Christianly. 
And that they would put into practice those things that they've taken in. That the, the knowledge that they've received, what goes on between their ears would be fleshed out with their hands. Let's turn thirdly to our hearts. These are the two imperatives of our text, to think and to do. But what follows them is a glorious promise that I began with when I began this morning. Verse 9 ends with these words, And the God of peace will be with you. In, in the passage we explored two weeks ago when, when I last spoke, verses 4 to 7, we were commanded three things. Rejoice in the Lord always, exhibit gentleness, and then don't be anxious but pray. And after that, Paul said, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So don't be anxious, but pray, and you'll receive this peace from Jesus. Here, the promise is a little bit different. Did you notice that? Here we're commanded, think Christianly and put into practice what you've received, and the God of peace will be with you. God will be with you. God will be with you. Which may lead us to ask this question, is this a conditional promise? Does this mean that if we think Christianly, if we, if we do this diligent thinking that we're called to do, and if we put into practice, at least sufficiently, put into practice what we're called to do, then, then God will be present with us? We, we could read it and, and almost come away with that sense, but, but I, that, that, that God being present with us is contingent upon right thinking and right behavior. And I want to say, in a sense it is, but it's not our right thinking. It's not our right behaving. Because throughout this letter, Paul has been pointing them to Jesus. He has been calling them to have the same mindset as Jesus, who humbly left heaven for the sake of us, who considered the interests of others, who considered us in our lostness. And he humbled himself. And he came to earth and lived as a human being. And he obeyed the Father. He put into practice all that the Father told him to do. He humbled himself and obeyed, even to the point of obeying and going to the cross, dying on the cross for us. Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus suffered what you and I deserved. And the Bible tells us that through faith in Him, we receive that. We are forgiven. We are washed. We are cleansed. And we are clothed with His obedience, with His putting into practice. This is not contingent on us getting it right in the thinking or the doing. It is contingent only on what Christ has done. And the promise is that the God of peace will be with us. When we trust Jesus, God will be with us. And from that place of His presence with us, we are called to follow Jesus with our minds and with our hands, with our thinking and with our doing, knowing that it, the power comes from God, the God of peace 
the God who has established peace between us and himself, the God who one day will establish perfect peace and set all things right, the God of peace will be with us. That is our hope. Our hope is, is not somehow that we would, we would think well enough, that we would do well enough. It's not rooted in that. That's what we're called to do as those who are redeemed, as those who are saved, those who, with whom God is present. The God of peace is with us. In closing, let me say this. I want us to think again of the Philippians, the, the original recipients of this letter. Living in a spiritually dark place. Living in a pagan world that, that not only disagreed with their most important beliefs, but, but a pagan world that was offended, even angry with them, that they would not acclaim lordship to Caesar. As everyone in the city of Philippi gathered together for civic things, they, they would acclaim lordship to Caesar. Caesar is lord, and, and these believers would not do that. And that, that bothered, it offended the Philippians, this very, very pro-Rome pagan city. They received this word from Paul. From Paul, who would, within probably two years of writing this letter, their beloved friend and pastor Paul, who would lose his life at the hands of this empire. These believers who are suffering, who are experiencing opposition and pushback because of their faith, Paul writes these words to them. In the midst of that place, brothers and sisters, he says, think about all these good things. Think Christianly. Fill your mind with these good things and put them into practice. He's not speaking theoretically. He's not speaking to people where everything around them is, is all the way they want it to be. No, he's speaking to people who are living in a dark place. What would it look like? What does it look like for you and I to follow Jesus in our Philippi, in, in your high school, in your junior high, in your elementary school, in your university, in, in your place of work? What does it look like for you to follow Jesus faithfully in your neighborhood? What does it look like for us to follow Jesus faithfully in Millwoods, in Edmonton? We don't have to wait for ideal circumstances. We are called in the midst of this dark place, surrounded by people who are lost, people who may, who may even be offended by our most significant truth claims. And we are called to follow Jesus, to think as Jesus calls us to think and to put into practice all that Jesus calls us to put into practice, knowing this, that no matter what we face, the God of peace will be with us. Amen.